Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Oz du Soleil. I felt tricked. I felt stupid. I was lost. I didn't get it. I got increasingly bitter. And for a lot of years, I could not stand hearing, thank you for your service. That and more. But before that, I am so thrilled, so thrilled to announce that Risk is returning to the stage, but it's going to be live streamed as well. Risk's first hybrid in-person and live streamed caveat show. Caveat is our home base in New York City, and it survived the storm just like we did. So we're coming on back 7 p.m. on June 17th. That's 7 p.m. Eastern, and Vernon Payne, Christine Gentry, Jim Christie, and Michelle Carlo will be there. I will be there, too. In the theater, the show will be somewhat socially distanced. It'll be one-third capacity. You will need to bring proof of vaccination. But for the first time ever, a Risk Live show on stage can be seen by people anywhere in the world because it will be live-streamed as well. It is, again, June 17th at 7 p.m. Eastern. You can get your tickets at risk-show.com slash tour. And folks, the next Storytelling for Business course that we're offering online, taught by Gail Thomas. Gail is an incredible teacher, and she has so much experience both in the storytelling world and in the business world. It's five sessions live online, Tuesdays from 7 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. Eastern from June 1st through June 29th, Gail Thomas teaching storytelling for business. You can find that class and so many more at thestorystudio.org. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Beastie Boys behind me now. And we're calling this week's episode Messed Up. Holy cow! (laughs) I, I am so grateful. I am so grateful. For the weekend I just had, we had a lovely, lovely, lovely Risk live stream on Friday night. And then on Saturday, the sun was shining. I got to see old friends in Prospect Park and people were not wearing masks because of the CDC mandate and hugs 
got to have long hugs and good conversations. I got to meet some new friends that evening, Risk fans. It's such a treat to spend quality time with Risk fans. And then the next day, I met a new fella. We had a play date that was incredible. (laughs) And then that night, I met up with some old friends on Zoom. I mean, holy cow. Oh, gosh, 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 gosh. All of that was so needed. And then to top it all off, you know, we're now planning on our first show coming back to the stage. I just feel so much more possibility brewing right now. I'm one of those people, and this is probably pretty common among a lot of storytellers, who has a real tug of war between introversion and extroversion. And so it can be very, very easy to allow long stretches of time of not, you know, spending quality time with people. And, you know, this past over a year of craziness we've been going through has really exacerbated that. So now I want to balance things out by leaning into (laughs) quality time spent with folks in their presence, giving hugs and more. (laughs) Oh, if you don't know, I will be spending quality time with some of you fans. I'm going to be doing this thing, a viewing of the Big Lebowski. I'm going to be on screen alongside the movie, riffing on trivia about the movie and joking around, kind of like Mystery Science Theater. Uh, This is on Thursday, May 20th at 9.15 p.m. Eastern. The movie itself will start at 9.30 you just get your tickets at risk-show.com slash tour. Come on, come on out. This is going to be a lot of fun. But also, I'm just so thrilled at what a great episode this is. Three wildly different stories. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Christine Collier, story that she told. I believe it was the last show that we did live on stage at Caveat. But before Christine, we're going to hear a little story from Richard Munchkin. This was an anecdote that Richard sent in to us, and you know you can do that too. Jeff Barr, our episode editor, had a lot of fun editing this one together. This is Richard Munchkin with a story we call Justify My Love. sitting up in bed and I'm reading this article by one of the world authorities on climate science, Madonna. And in this article, she says that she pees in the shower because it saves her one flush of the toilet. And I turn to my wife and I say, Madonna says she pees in the shower. And my wife says, yeah, everybody does that. And I said, what do you mean everybody does that? I'm everybody. I definitely do not do that. Are you telling me you pee in the shower? And she says, if you don't pee in the shower, you're the one who's weird. 
and I think, oh my God, that's disgusting. And the next day, I'm in the shower, and I look down at my feet, and I think, my wife has been peeing on my feet for 28 years. And then I look at the drain, and I think, if I was even going to attempt that, do I have to aim so it goes exactly down the drain? And what if it starts splashing and gets on my feet? And I try to put it out of my mind because I think it's just disgusting. And I let the warm water wash over me. And I think, oh, what the hell? And I just let it go. And oh my God, it's fantastic. This feeling of calm just washes over me. And then I'm kind of sad because I'm thinking, oh my God, this is like some great party that everybody knew about and nobody told me and nobody invited me. So now I have to admit, I am a shower peer. But I do not feel ashamed because Madonna and I are saving the planet one flush at a time. What are you going to do now? Did what are you, know you going to do after you, the show? Do you know that it's good if you pee in the shower? <laughs> no, seriously. Peeing in the shower is really good if it bites um, um, athlete's foot. <laughs> I'm serious. No, urine is an, is like an is it's like an antiseptic. It's all got to do with your uh, the enzymes in your body. Don't don't you know a good pharmacist? <laughs> um, Get yourself some Desinex or whatever that stuff is. I have to pee, and you know what? I'm gonna pee right here. Go ahead. You're damn right. I'm going ahead, and I don't need permission from you. You hear that, everybody? I'm gonna pee wherever I goddamn It was the late 1970s. My dad was a very young 30-something. He was really good-looking, very successful. He was a little bit hippie, a little bit party animal. He drove a Corvette, he was in a band, and he had full custody of 12-year-old me and my 11-year-old brother. We didn't know at the time why he had full custody of us. Uh, it was just kind of laid out that you're living with your dad full-time now, and you're going to see your mom every other weekend. I did find out later that my mom had actually given my dad full custody because she felt that she would only be able to give us an impoverished life and that we would be better off financially with my dad. But at the time, we didn't know. And um, my dad was living a very bachelor life, so it was, it was a little bit shocking. At the same time, I started Catholic school from public school. So I came in, and uh, these kids had all known each other since kindergarten, so I was already a little bit of the odd man out. There was nobody that was from a divorced family, and absolutely nobody even knew anybody whose dad had full custody. So I was feeling, I felt a lot of shame about that. Like, there's something wrong with me that I'm the only person that this happens to. And the kids kind of, you know, reflected that back, that I was a little bit odd. I came in one weekend, and a nun pulled me aside and said, you know, your parents are sinners. Uh, they're dating. I said, but sister, I said, you know, my parents are divorced. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. Not in the eyes of the church. In the eyes of the church, your parents are still married, so they're committing adultery and they're cheating. 
And that was kind of like the atmosphere of the adults in my life. That was the energy that they reflected back to me. I did have one really good friend, Angela, and uh, she also was a little bit of a broken bird. Um, her father had died a few years earlier, so her mom was a single mom, and Angela had a ton of unsupervised time, and we spent all our unsupervised time together. She was with me all the time. Um, she actually even had chores at my house. Well, one of the things that changed for me when my dad finally got full custody, um, we went out to dinner all the time. We never ate at home. So during the week, on the weekend, every single night, it was either something casual, takeout. And once a week, my dad insisted that we go to what we called fancy dining. It was, you know, probably like a four-star type restaurant, and we hated it. It was a long dining experience. It wasn't kid-friendly. There wasn't food that we liked. One Saturday night, Angela was with us, and he took us out to the uh, local Holiday Inn and their restaurant there. And it got to the point of the um, restaurant where we were waiting for our dessert. And Angela and I decided that we were going to go off to the ladies' room. Off we go. And uh, right in front of the ladies' room, there was this big horizontal vending machine. And we looked over. And it had what I now know are toiletries, but they were all sample sizes and it was miniature of everything. And we were 12 and we were fascinated. I think there was like a little sanitary napkins and little tampons and little condoms and whatnot. So we were giggling and looking. And I, one point, turned to my right and looked down the long hallway. There was the men's room, the pool, and an outside door for the guests that came from the back of the uh, hotel, they could come in. And as I turned my head to look, in coming through the door was a very tall man, naked, completely naked. Of course, I grabbed Angela, pointed him out. We started giggling and we ran into the bathroom. And it was one of those bathrooms where you go in and the first room has like a couch and mirrors. And then you can go through another door to get to the stalls. So we stopped in that first area. We were giggling and giggling. I said, oh, Angela, Angela, he was probably trying to sneak in. He probably wanted to hit the jacuzzi, you know, or try to get it and didn't think any of the guests would be up this late. I said, I really have to go to the bathroom. So we went in, we separated into stalls, we did our business, and just as I went to pull up my pants, I heard the outside door open, and I froze. I knew, I just knew it was this guy. And I looked down, and sure enough, the next door opened, and in he came, and he stood right between our two stalls, and I wouldn't look up. I was looking down at his ugly toes and his naked feet, and I could feel his eyes boring into the back of my head, and I knew if I looked up, I would be haunted forever. So my heart was pounding and I was looking down and suddenly he reached over and he tried to open the doors. He was shaking both of our stall doors and jiggling them open and trying to get them open, pounded on the door. From the far off distance, I heard a security announcement, something like security being paged to the lobby. And the guy left. Angela and I began whisper talking. What do we do? What do we do? Do we yell? No, 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 we don't yell. But we were told to yell. No, 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 because he'll come back and he'll get us. He'll know we're trying to tell. She says, we got to get out of here. On the count of three, let's meet out in the front of the stalls. One, two, three, we came out. We huddled up together. I was terrified that when I walked through that door, he was going to be waiting there and he was going to grab me. I just knew it. It was so scary. But Angela, again, she's like, we got to get out of here. We got to run for it. One, two, three, we whipped the door open, we ran, whipped the other door open, ran across the lobby, slid back to the table, started to tell my dad we were laughing, we were crying, 
one of the employees came over and said, girls, you know, did you see something? And we said, yeah. And they brought us out to the lobby and the police were there. We had to tell them what happened. Angela's mom was called to um, come and pick her up. And right before Angela left, I pulled her aside. I said, please don't tell anybody. Please don't tell anybody at school tomorrow because I'm already the odd kid. I'm already getting teased. Like this to me is just like one more thing. Like this happens to me because there's something wrong with me. I, this is the way it goes. So please, please don't tell. She says, okay. We went home that night. It was very unsettling. You know, we were nervous. I was nervous. Didn't sleep well. Didn't want to go to school. My dad said I had to go to school. So off to school I go, you know, kind of sick to my stomach, just, just very nervous and unsettled. And we finally get in and I'm standing up on the bus, getting ready to get off. And I look through the window and I see Angela and I see all our friends around her. And my heart just sunk because I just knew she's telling them. She's telling them what happened. I wanted to cry, but I couldn't. I was at school, so I reluctantly got off the bus. And sure enough, my girlfriends and the kids came running over. What happened? What happened? We want to know your story. I started to just say a little thing, you know, a comment here and there. And then I warmed up and started to tell them my story. Finally, we got called in. As we sat down, you know, I was realizing I actually feel better. You know, I actually feel lighter. You know, Angela knew innately what I didn't know. Like, this wasn't my shame. You know, this was not my bad behavior. This was his bad behavior. Seeing those kids, their sympathy and the fact that they were feeling horror for me kind of started to loosen the shackles of shame that I'd been carrying for so long. A few weeks later, we did get a call from the police. They did catch this guy. He had chased another hotel guest out into the parking lot, and she managed to get into the car, lock her doors, and he was out there naked, and so they arrested him. So that made us feel better. I mean, nowadays, I don't know. But at the time, we were like, oh, he's arrested. He's away. You know, he's great. Angela and I, uh, we are still ride or die to this day. Uh, this was just one of the many escapades and misadventures that we've been on together. And uh, what was true that night stays true today, that her and I, we are always braver, braver when we're together. The uh, eating out continued for another couple years, and my dad discovered the crock pot, but that's for another night. And um, ultimately, you know, tonight is basically like, fuck you, shame. You know, fuck you to shame. <laughs> Thank you.
This is Risk. This is Talking Heads behind me now. And we just heard from Christine Collier. Before that, a little something from Richard Munchkin. You can find Richard on Instagram at Richard LVSS. Folks, if you love what we do here on Risk and over at the Story Studio 2, The support of our fans is absolutely crucial to us. It couldn't be more crucial than it has been for the past year or so. By becoming a member over at patreon.com slash risk, you're going to have access to dozens and dozens of hours of bonus content, lots and lots more wonderful stories, and interviews with staff and storytellers, my own personal check-ins. I just put up one recently that is quite loaded. A Risk fan wrote in to say, Kevin, you are a lot. (laughs) I am a lot. And there is a lot more of me and everything else that Risk and the Story Studio has to offer at patreon.com slash risk. So go become a member. And if you just want to make a one-time donation, you can do that at paypal.me slash risk show also folks may 27th 8 30 p.m eastern we're doing another social event for risk fans it's a facilitated discussion event called common core this is the fourth time or so we've done this it's always incredible you have one-on-one conversations with other risk fans in zoom breakout rooms hosted by me and JC and our friend Adrian Mulroney, 8.30 p.m. May 27th, and you can find out more at riskdeshshow.com slash tour. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Well, folks, I am so excited about our final story on this week's episode. This one comes to us from Oz de Soleil. Oz has shared some amazing stories on the podcast in the past, but this one is really, he really pulled out all the stops on this one. 
This is such a beautifully honest story and so well-detailed. And I always just appreciate Oz's way of expressing himself. I always just find that he has a flavor of expressing himself that I just get completely wrapped up in. I highly encourage you check his videos out on YouTube at Excel on Fire. And here is Oz du Soleil now with a story we call Coming Unglued. One morning, I walked into my job at this small retail store. I get inside, and there is the manager on the other side of the counter. Oz, can I talk to you for a second? He's like 6'3", wears glasses, and his black hair is pulled back into this long ponytail. And he's one of these people that doesn't make a lot of eye contact. So he's looking over my shoulder. Oz, uh, I was talking with the owner and uh, <laughs> uh, we decided to give you your two weeks notice. So um, <laughs> uh, your last day is gonna be the 31st of October. He would always do this nervous laugh whenever he had to deliver bad news. He was supposed to take the edge off but it was just making it worse and I wanted to smack him. My last day would be the 31st of October, the same day that the lease on my apartment ends. Oh boy. I've got two roommates. One has decided he's leaving Chicago and going to California. The other one, He's already found an apartment by himself that he's going to be moving into. I can't afford the current three-bedroom apartment by myself, and now things are worse. I don't have an employer that a potential landlord can contact. My apartment shopping is over. I have got to figure out what I am going to do on October 31st. Now, let me tell you. Years later, I ran into one of the managers from the shop and um, I asked him, what was that all about, getting fired out of nowhere? And he had that gesture of, I'll tell you if you really want to know. And I waited for him to speak up and he said, OK, you ask too many questions and the owner of the store was cooking the books. There you go. Wow. Okay, so on October 31st, I moved all of my stuff out of the apartment and into a storage unit. I closed it, locked it up, walked out into the Chicago streets, and I was just going to figure things out. Now, I had a couple thousand dollars in the bank. 
I was drawing about $300 a week in unemployment. Not enough to get an apartment, but enough to keep me alive. I spent about $75 on an adult continuing education class at a college downtown Chicago just so I could have access to the building. If somebody saw me sleeping, they might wake me up, ask to see an ID. I show the ID, I go back to sleep. So I never was truly out on the streets. I just didn't live anywhere. I was one of the invisible homeless. Going and staying with my mother wasn't a viable option. For one, she was about 50 miles north of Chicago. Second, she lived in government housing. And there's all kinds of rules, restrictions, and complications if I wanted to go move there. I joined the Navy when I was 20, and here I am at almost 27 years old, and it felt like I was picking my life up right from when I was 20 years old. At the end of a sailor's enlistment, there is pressure to re-enlist. When it got clear to my higher-ups that I was not going to re-enlist, I was bunched in with a bunch of other guys who also weren't re-enlisting, and we were pretty much left for dead, and we would go to these half-assed workshops. They were supposed to help us transition into civilian life, but they really didn't. When I got out into civilian life, there was a whole lot of weird stuff to deal with. All of the talk about, thank you for your service, America loves its veterans, and then corporate America and all of their diversity programs. It all felt like a bunch of hogwash. I felt tricked. I felt stupid. I was lost. I didn't get it. I got increasingly bitter, and for a lot of years, I could not stand hearing, thank you for your service. Homelessness was strange in ways that aren't obvious. For one, there is all the thinking. Even sleeping at the school, I had to look like I was an exhausted student that needed a nap. And not like a homeless guy who'd been up walking the streets all night going from one 24-hour cafe to another. I had to be creative about how I killed time. That often meant a lot of walking in the cold Chicago winters. If I had to get somewhere at a certain time, a bus might get me there too fast. So I had to choose being out in the cold to kill time over being warm, and getting to a place too fast. I recall a lady who was trying to help me. She told me about a friend of hers who was hiring and that he was having an orientation the next evening. And when I saw her again, I admitted I did not go to the orientation. And she gave me this look of contempt like I had made a fool of her 
that I looked serious, like I was really trying to help myself, but I'm full of shit. She was done with me. But I didn't tell her that I contacted him. And he was all evasive about what the job was. Is it in a mail room? Is it computer work? What is this job? He just kept telling me to come on down. I'd be perfect for it. Well, he didn't know me. How did he know I was perfect for anything? I had heard these conversations before. I put on my suit and I go and it turns out to be a multi-level marketing scheme. They're often dismissed as pyramid schemes, not a real job. That's why I didn't go. But this lady was done with me. One thing that gets me is if somebody's falling on hard times, they're unemployed, other people are saying, do anything. You got to support your family. Go flip burgers if you have to. Well, underemployment is a tough hole to dig out of. And imagine an accountant who's making maybe $70,000 a year and some wrong shit happens and they do wind up I'm going to flip burgers if that's what it takes to support my family. Well, no, you're not going to be able to support a family on McDonald's. Also, when things start to come back together and then that accountant has to go to interviews and explain why they spent 18 months working at McDonald's. They don't want to hear that proud I did anything to support my family. No, that don't work. Now that person has to fix a hole in their resume. They got to tell lies. It is hell coming up out of underemployment and it is not a pride thing. Another strange thing about being homeless. See, I had gone to my P.O. box, got my unemployment check. Then I walked over to a check cashing place. And here's more of the thinking. Do I mail the check and have the full amount of the check in my bank, but I've got to mail it to the bank? Now, see, this is the mid 90s. Direct deposit and debit cards weren't a common thing yet. Right. So I would have to mail a check to my bank. Or I can take this check and pay the fees at a check cashing place. How important is it to have the money tonight versus in four days? This time I needed the money tonight. So I get to the check cashing place, sign the back of the check. I've got my state ID. Slide it under the bulletproof glass to the guy and he looks at it and says, uh, I need a street address. I tell him I don't have a street address to give you. The state of Illinois mailed the unemployment check to the post office box. Well, what about the address on your ID? 
I don't live there anymore. Well, I'm going to need a street address. I don't have one to give you. He takes the check, walks about 15 feet behind him to his supervisor. This lady sitting at a desk. They're talking back and forth and looking at the check. Then she screams, Hey, we're going to need a street address. And I scream back through the bulletproof glass. I don't have a street address to give you. I've got the P.O. box there. Well, I know you don't live in a P.O. box. And if you do, it must be awfully crowded in there. Oh, that stung. That stung. And I thought to myself, you miserable, rotten bitch. In this warm building behind this bulletproof glass. I am not going to give her the pleasure of knowing the situation I'm in. So that she might have pity on me or she might have another smart ass comment. She slid my check back to the guy. He walked back up to right behind the bulletproof glass. Slid the check back to me and I walked out. But these places have cashed my checks before. So I walked maybe a half mile to another check cashing place and they cashed the check without any drama or any questions. So what the fuck was going on back at that other place? I don't know. My life centered around that P.O. box. And one day... I went to go get my mail and there was a postcard. It said, sorry, you didn't get the job, but we're going to keep your resume on file. The job had to do with stock market options. During college, I had worked briefly at the Chicago Board Options Exchange. I never traded options, but that job description did not ask for somebody who had traded options. But If they ask me about a call or a put, a strike price, a break-even point, a butterfly spread, I had some sense of what that was. The job also called for a college degree. I had a degree in philosophy with a minor in economics. In the job hunt, folks had told me a common strategy is to bend and stretch the truth a little bit. And for where I was mentally and desperate. I believed that applying for this job took the least amount of bending and stretching. I wanted that job, but also I hadn't been out of the Navy very long and there was a lot of weird stuff about civilian life that it just didn't make any sense to me. I get feedback in the Navy even though it might come with some motherfuckers and just a bunch of unnecessary nastiness, there's some feedback. But here's this postcard. Not even a letter in an envelope. No kind of, hey, thank you, but here's some weaknesses in your resume that you might want to tighten up. Or, we like your resume, 
seem like somebody we ought to know about. So please come in and let's see if we can find you something. No, none of that. I looked at the address and it was a place about two blocks from where I was at the post office. And I start thinking, I wanted that job and I'm qualified for it. But here I am in some pants I've been wearing for three days. And I was wearing this vest, something like you'd see fishermen, our photographers wearing. It's got a lot of pockets and zippers and snaps and things on it. I kept my pager in there, my bus pass, whatever I needed. It was all handy in one pocket of pouch on this vest. And I decided, in spite of how I look, I'm going to go and have a Hollywood moment. Never mind this postcard that I didn't get the job. Never mind that I'm wearing this fisherman's vest. I am going to go over there and talk with this lady who signed this postcard, Lourdes Perez. I'm going to talk myself into that job. And five years from now, we're going to be at some ceremony and I'm going to be awarded some great prize for being a top employee. And we're going to laugh and tell a story about how I walked in there. I had the gumption, the backbone to show up and talk myself into that job in my fisherman's vest. So I went over there. I took the elevator up. I got into this really small lobby and there's this young black guy behind the desk. I say, I would like to talk with Lourdes Perez. He says, uh, yeah. And he looked real puzzled. And what would you like to talk with her about? Very humbly, I said, I got this postcard and I would just like to talk with her because I'm qualified for this job. I had no idea what I was going to say to Lourdes Perez if she came out. I was desperate. I needed a job. But he says, sorry, man, you didn't get the job. I can't call her out here for that. But come on, I'm qualified for the job. I just want to talk with her. His voice started raising and I could hear the agitation. You didn't get the job. There's nothing to talk with her about. Well, is she even here? There is nothing to talk about with her. You didn't get the job. And I'm trying to send waves to emote something to this guy brother fellow black man I'm out here in the world my ass is showing I need some help but he just kept saying you didn't get the job so I decide to heighten this Hollywood moment so I go and sit down and cross my legs I had my backpack with me. I sat that down on the floor by my feet. And he said, you need to leave. No, I want to talk with Lourdes Perez. Now I'm starting to get nervous. 
This is not how it goes in Hollywood. This is not how it goes when I've heard panel discussions about people who've done creative things to get hired on their dream job. This was not going right. And people would come in, people who worked there, they would come in and go through the lobby, see the scowl on my face, look over at the guy behind the desk. Is everything okay? he'd look and say yeah I got this it's under control don't worry and eventually he said he was gonna call the police and I just sat back in my chair and I looked at him he said again you need to leave you didn't get the job I see this isn't going right and I need to get out of here but now We've hit this kind of a showdown moment of me and him that is not even about the job anymore. And now I am not going to say, hey, brother, I'm sorry. I, I started this shit and, you know, I'm sorry. I, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to get out of this without feeling like a punk. So I just sat there in this standoff. And then I heard him, he picked up the phone and he was saying, yes, I have somebody who needs to be escorted out of the building. And he gave the address and the suite number. Part of my mind starts thinking, oh, he's bluffing. He ain't called no police. But I'm sitting here trying to have this Hollywood moment that's evaporating. I don't want to get arrested. I don't want to just walk out and have him win but what if he did call the police being arrested is not what I need right now so I didn't even look back at the guy I just grabbed my backpack and made this one sweeping move grabbed the backpack opened the front door and out I took the elevator back down to the main lobby, and as I was stepping off the elevator, there were two police officers coming in the revolving door. I don't know if they were coming for me, but I was nervous, and I'm glad that I got up and got out of there. I decided to walk over to the center where I would look for jobs. It was the Alumni Center, associated with the college that I graduated from. It's a small office, maybe five computers, copy machines, fax machines, lots of books, whatever person needed to find a job. They'd host resume writing workshops, networking workshops. And the director there, nice lady, early 30s she and I developed a rapport over the time that I would go there we'd chat a little bit joke a little bit and I would do my thing looking for a job and leave so while I'm walking over there after what happened in that lobby I felt stupid I felt angry I was confused about what's real what are the rules that I don't know about life 
something is wrong here, but I got to get it together. And I wasn't so sure that I should tell anybody about what happened in that lobby. Maybe I should just die with that secret. But when I got there, I decided that she would be the one person that I would tell about that lobby incident. She knew me, but she wasn't so close to where she knew me. She felt like she was a perfect closeness, perfect distance for me to share this with. And I told the lady at the center about what happened. She just kind of looked at me and said, wow, that's tough. And then I went on into the center, worked on my resume, looked for more jobs. And when I came back to the center a couple days later, before I could sit down in front of a computer, she says, hey, Oz, come here. She brought me into the office. She says, Oz, I am worried about you. And I got some phone numbers. One phone number was for the county mental health services. Another phone number was for the VA. I felt insulted. I felt angry. I don't need somebody monitoring my mental health. I need a job. I don't need to chase any more MLMs around the city. I need a job. I don't need to pray with anybody. I don't need a millionth person to look at my resume. I need a job, not these phone numbers. I politely accepted the phone numbers from her, thanked her. Then I went and found a computer to go look for jobs. When I left and I got outside, her words, I'm worried about you, came back. And there I realized I am coming unglued. And here is somebody who is willing to say something. So I went and I found a payphone. I called the VA. They told me to come over. I rode a bus. I got there and started this process of who am I? Yes, I'm a veteran. Why am I there? Because I got all this weird stuff going on and I'm homeless. I explained this whole story. I tell him about the lady at the center being worried about me and about the situation in that lobby. This doctor said, I'm going to give you two choices. One, check yourself in to the mental health ward now. Or two, commit to doing this program we have. Veterans come from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day for about two months. There are different programs. There's counselors. If you need medications, we can try to take care of that as best we can. So you either check in or commit to this program and I am not giving you the opportunity to go home and think about it you've got to pick something right now and I'm thinking that he probably can't make me do either one of these 
But here is another person who sees that I am unraveling. So I told him that I would do the daily program. A lot of the activities in that program weren't so relevant to me, but they were a place for me to be. And I was around people and I was able to talk and get some kind of peace on a daily basis. I didn't have to think all the time. This was a critical change in my trajectory. It still took about two years to get back to where I felt like I was a dignified, self-sufficient adult. The program helped me get a room at a YMCA. I wound up in California, staying with my brother for about a year. Then friends I stayed with back in the Chicago area. Then another VA program that helped me find a job. And they stayed on program participants about saving money. And we'd be regularly asked, how much money you got? All right, so I got stable and I got a job. And eventually, I was back on my own. But it, yeah, it took about two years. What I think about that day when I went to that lobby in that fishing vest insisting on talking to Lourdes Perez that was one of the lowest darkest moments of my whole period of homelessness and I'm thankful to that lady who said I am worried about you
is all for this week's episode, folks. This is the Isley Brothers behind me now, and we just heard from Oz du Soleil. Holy cow. What an incredible job Oz did with that story. Don't forget, you can find him on YouTube at Excel on Fire. And folks, I welcome more and more stories like that one. The nitty-gritty experiences of people who might not have come from so much money or might not have had so many connections or might have struggled with disabilities or might have ended up sidetracked or marginalized for any number of reasons. Please, if you know folks who might have stories like those to share, or if you yourself do, we are at risk-show.com slash submissions. Now, all of the music that you heard in that story was composed by our audio editor, John LaSala. John did all the editing, music, and sound design for that one. And, you know, John has written a song in a very different musical theater style for a play called Arizona. It's a play about a husband and wife who travel to Arizona, the Mexico border as a part of the quote-unquote Minutemen project, the play tackles the immigration issue in surprising ways. And it will stream online starting Friday, May 21st. Tickets are only $10, and you can get them at bit.ly slash Arizona Play. Folks, if you ever wanted to share an anecdote on the show, like that one that Richard Munchkin shared at the very top of the show, those stories that focus on mostly one incident and aren't much longer than, say, four minutes long, three or four minutes long. Well, everything you need to know about pitching us one of those anecdotes is at risk-show.com slash anecdotes. So get on over there. And let's talk about these stories that we've just heard on the show. For our socials, we're at Risk Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at the Kevin Allison. The Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook is a great place to really talk back and forth with other fans. Also, our subreddit is at Risk Podcast. And for some in-person social time with fellow Risk fans, we're having our next Common Core on May 27th. Common Core is a facilitated discussion event where Risk fans come and have one-on-one conversations in Zoom breakout rooms. And it's hosted by me and our friend Adrian Mulroney, and we... You know, uh, it's been just a lovely, lovely time. In fact, the gals that I spent time with this past weekend, I originally met at a Common Core. So the next one's May 27th, and you can find tickets for it at risk-show.com slash tour. And finally, don't forget that for storytelling training from me personally, you can find me at kevinallison.com. Or if you just want to get a little video greeting from me for a friend, you can find me at cameo.com slash thekevinallison. Folks, today's the day. 
take a risk. Bang!